Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, one of the hosts of the New New Books and History Network, and I'm here today with Tamar Herzig. Dr. Herzig is a professor of history at Tel Aviv University and the director of Tel Aviv University's Morris E. Curiel Institute for European Studies and, right now, the vice chairperson of the Historical Society of Israel. We're here to talk about her new book, A Convert's Tale, Art, Crime, and Jewish Apostasy in Renaissance Italy, out in 2019 with Harvard University Press. Hello, Tamar. How are you? Hello. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's August. It's August and I'm wearing a sweater. So that's, that's I'm, I'm obsessed with the weather constantly. Uh-huh. Um, so you're busy. You are, that's a lot of titles. <laughs> yes, it's... Um... <laughs> a lot to do but we're still <laughs> in the middle of the summer break so yeah, um, right. we, we only start teaching in in mid or late october this year i think it's mid-october but still mm. seems very far away yeah absolutely that's a and who and who knows and in, in 2020 that's a whole nother lifetime who knows what, <laughs> well we know we'll we will have to be <laughs> teaching online mostly so yeah, yeah. Well, we hope so. Yeah, uh, this uh, I, you know our friends who are teaching in person are not thrilled. So yes. I'm glad to hear that's happening. So let's talk about a convert's tale. Oh, this was such an exciting and fun book to read. I mean, de- you know, detailing the life of a very interesting, possibly tra- tragic, and definitely frustrating uh, Italian Jew turned Christian goldsmith who was, on one hand, connected to the wealthiest and most powerful families in northern Italy, and on the other, an inveterate gambler and a general lout. Um, Yes. So this (laughs) this book... You're saying it's a tragic figure, also had a tendency to constantly get himself into trouble. Yeah, he he definitely has uh, that that fatal flaw that I I was trained to look for. Um, So this book represents a bit of a departure for you. The era and the location remain the same as your previous work, but your focus has shifted a bit. You know, in Savonarola's Women and in Christ Transformed, we see your interest in women's networks and the construction of the category of women. Um, And that's here, but the dial's twisted the tiniest bit. You're looking at the networks in the Jewish community um, and in the artistic community and the construction of masculinity. So um, I'm curious, how did you come to write this book? So I'm just I'm just happy that you summarized my work um, trajectory so far in such a, a great way, um, and it's true that I, I was always interested in in Christian spirituality in um, Catholic sanctity and mysticism, uh, and was always interested interested in. Uh, the gender dimension. So it was in female spirituality and female mysticism and in monastic life, in women's monastic life. And um, so I spent a lot of time working in the archives um, when I was working on on my first book, uh, Savonarola's Women, um, Visions and Reform in Renaissance Italy. 
I worked on Ferrara on um, in northern Italy, which was Savonarola's birthplace, and on the, uh, one particular convent, um, Santa Caterina da Siena. And at some point, I just I was allowed to photocopy. It was before uh, you could actually take your um, cell phone, mm-hmm. your smartphone, to the archive. So I was allowed to photocopy um, the convent chronicle, and I just kept the photocopies. And at some point, I. Um, looked at them because I wanted to, um, um, well, looking for different things. And I came across um, um, a nun who was um, identified as a former Jew, as a convert from Judaism, and as the daughter of a Jewish convert um, who was also a goldsmith. And the chronicle Mm -hmm. mentioned his name. And I just thought it would be interesting to find out more about the circumstances of the family's conversion, basically because I wanted to know more about what it was like for women who had been raised in the Jewish tradition to spend the rest of their lives in a monastic, in a Catholic monastic community. And this is something that has um, um, fascinated me for a long time. And I have an ongoing research project about nuns who were converts from from Judaism. And this was one of the first cases that I came across. Um, Because in Judaism, um, girls who grew up as Jews really could not envision any kind of future or destiny, either than being wives and mothers. Um, Mm -hmm. And then as I discovered and I came across dozens of cases of nuns who were converts from Judaism, you know, some of these girls ended up or, or young women ended up spending decades in monastic communities behind enclosed walls, um, mm-hmm. living their lives in celibacy. So I was uh, very interested in what it was like for, for a Jewish girl um, to, to actually end up in a convent. Um, I have to say that in general, the results of this research have been somewhat disappointing for me because mm-hmm. what I discovered is that the vast majority of cases of girls whose family history I could actually uh, trace back uh, to the time of their baptism, most of them had been baptized with their families and were actually pushed into the convent uh, by their father or other um, family members just to save on the dowry because it was so much cheaper right. to send your mm-hmm. daughter to a convent um, as the bride of Christ than it was to actually find a decent husband for her and pay a dowry that mm-hmm. was about five mm-hmm. times as much. So, um, so I I was interested in this particular case because, as you said, this is the time period that uh, that's my favorite time period during the the Italian Wars, late fifteenth and early sixteenth century in northern Italy, and in the courtly city states of of um, Ferrara and Mantua, and um, and I have not been able to find well, hardly anything about this nun, uh, but I did find out so much about her father and why he converted because I discovered that he was actually, prior to his conversion, the most famous Jewish artist of his time. So, and one of the two um, best known um, Italian Jewish artists of the Renaissance. So, um, So he left behind a very long paper trail just because mm-hmm. of his professional occupation uh, as um, uh, um, as an artist who was very successful and um, and some of the documents that 
focus on his work, on his professional life, actually enabled me to um, reconstruct both the reasons for his baptism and the way that conversion from Judaism to Catholicism affected his life and the lives of his family members for several decades. And that is pretty Mm -hmm. rare because normally accounts of Jewish apostasy, of conversion from Judaism to Catholicism in Italy, in early modern Italy, just focus on the moment of conversion uh, or or on the moment of Mm -hmm. baptism, actually, which is normally documented. And in this case, um, as this record regarding the one daughter who became a nun, um, it was actually possible to, to reconstruct the impact of conversion for several decades, which, which provides a fuller picture of what conversion yeah. from Judaism actually meant. Uh, yeah, for the convert and his, and his community. But it is a really exceptional case, in part because of this paper trail. So let's talk about that paper trail you just mentioned. What, what do your sources include? What kind of things are you looking at? So I have to start by saying that, um, so after looking for more information about um, the girl, the nun, um, mm-hmm. um, unsuccessfully, I have not found uh, any single mention of her outside the convent material. So just her uh, mentioning the convent chronicle and in one other document from the convent, um, I was looking at um, last wills and uh, testaments. I was looking at letters, primarily letters, correspondence that pertains to the family and in payment registers of different kinds um, for the goldsmith work, for the different things that he did. Um, I was also very much looking for um, criminal records from the um, proceedings against him that actually led to his eventual apostasy. But unfortunately, all criminal records from Ferrara from this period have not survived. So this is one thing that mm. just, um, luckily, he was such a, a celebrity that the rulers of Ferrara and Mantua, who were related um, they had family ties. The daughter of the Dukes of Ferrara was married, what um, uh, was uh, Marquesa of Mantua, Isabella d'Este. So they kept writing each other and they wrote about him and he wrote to them. And these letters have survived. So there is a lot of information about that. And, and actually, uh, letters were the main source that I used. Also, some notarial documents. Um, having to do with money and, and financial issues and um, legacies that were uh, left by, by different people in his family, but, uh, but mostly letters in different um, archives. And that, that was also interesting mm-hmm. because, um, well, Jewish history in the Renaissance, uh, as other scholars have shown, is, is a, a history of mobility. You know, we think about the Jewish community in Mantua or the mm-hmm. Jewish community in Ferrara, but actually Jews were very mobile. And in his mm-hmm. case, it was very, uh, um, very clear. He was born in Florence. His father was probably from southern Italy. His mother was from northern Italy, from a place near Ferrara. Then after the father's death, they moved to Bologna. Um, and then as the, the convert himself prior to his conversion, um, 
um, is seeking professional um, training and then work, he starts moving around in the Mantovano area and ends up settling in, in Ferrar. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, which, which, is, which is why, which is why documentation about his life and his family, he's scattered all over the place. So I had to work mm-hmm. in archives in, in Ferrara, in Modena, in Mantua, in Bologna, in Florence, um, and hmm. in different, different kinds of archives. So, mm-hmm. uh, but that, that was fun. Yeah, but fun. Probably a little bit frustrating learning all the little uh, idiosyncrasies of each archive, but mostly yes. fabulous, I'm yeah. guessing. I can only look yeah. back at this period in which one could actually travel freely to <laughs> archives and miss those happy days when uh, international strange. traveling was actually possible. Yeah. Yeah, well, or, you know, just going to another city on public transportation. <laughs> you know, it sounds so nice, doesn't it? It's like a dream. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, real quick, uh, you mentioned the letters, and I think we all know what those mean. But when you talk about notarial records, this sounds really dry. They are. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they are really. But they can tell us some interesting things, right? So yes. what is there something really cool you learned that um, you want to tell me about? Well, the notarial documents were not that interesting, except for the fact that they actually reveal um, how converts could um, benefit from their conversion, mm-hmm. because as converts, they could actually sue their or, or threat to sue their family's acquaintances and just get more than their share of specific specific inheritance. And this is something that that I came across. But sources in general, I mean, they can be very dry, but tell you a lot. So one of the sources that I enjoyed um, very much was the inventory of the jewelry, just a a list of Mm -hmm. jewelry pieces of Lucrezia Borgia, who was the last major patron of of this goldsmith. Mm -hmm. And just by looking at this very long and boring list of pieces of jewelry, uh, you can learn that this convert artist was so highly esteemed that um, the Duchess uh, Lucrezia Borgia actually ordered more pieces of jewelry and luxury objects from his workshop than from any other goldsmith or jeweler who was working in the Ferrara area at that time. And that he was so, his um, artistic skills were so highly valued that his pieces were were actually used as gifts to impress uh, people like the king of France. And mm-hmm. that is something that you could find noted in just an inventory of a list of pieces of jewelry that was drafted oh, wow. by the treasurer of, of uh, the court. Wow. Yeah. Nice. All right. So let me give a quick overview of what we got here. So this is the story of Salomone de Sesso, the Jewish goldsmith, yes. who had a very complex relationship with and occasionally ran afoul of his fellow Jews. Uh, he is then charged with sodomy, amongst other things, and converts to Christianity. And then is Ercole de Fidelis, the faithful, um, which I, you can't see me, but I am rolling my eyes. Um, <laughs> he enjoyed the favor of the likes of Isabella d'Este and Lucrezia Borgia. And then when he lost, he loses their support and loses them and falls into poverty, probably aided by his severe gambling problem. And then he's forced into exile and dies unnoticed, right? Well, he's um, he doesn't lose. Their, they just die one after they the other. Eventually they die. Yeah. It takes 
almost 20 years for them all to die, but then they die and their successors are not as interested in him. Mm-hmm. So, so he's still receiving commissions, but we have to keep in mind that this is in the very, um, it's the last decade of the Italian wars and this area of Northern Italy in particular is suffering from a severe economic crisis. So most people can just not, not afford, um, luxury objects of the kind that mm-hmm. the goldsmith specialized in. So Yeah. Well and even in the best of days, right? Yeah. Very few women quite have and men. Their taste. Women and men. He and, was and men, obviously, men. yes. Yeah. Lots of yeah, lots of because well that's another thing you talk about, right, is like how much jewelry is a status symbol amongst yes. men and yes. women. Yeah. And actually, um, men pay more because what they need is the kind of, I mean, what they commission is the kind of armor and swords and things that require the use of precious materials in great uh, quantities. So yeah, they're actually, they're, they're the major patrons of jewelry in this period, which is interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, I know, but uh, it's just, it's not like swords are only so interesting Bracelets, on the other hand. Yeah, no. Well, his claim to fame is because of the swords that he created for Francesca Borgia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Queen of Swords. Unbelievable work. Yes, it is. Uh, Yeah. Very impressive. All right. Very poorly preserved, I have to say. It was very disappointing to see. Yes. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. 500 years is tough. It's a long time. And his other pieces of war, I mean, the pieces of jewelry that he created were actually melted down at some point and reused for new pieces of jewelry as fashion changed and the patrons died. So that was the downside of being a goldsmith or jeweler is that Mm -hmm. your work could only last as long as fashion remained unchanged. Yeah. I mean, but that's almost everything's ephemeral, right? I mean, if you think about Canvases get painted over, houses yeah. are torn down. Happened like, even work, Michelangelo, so. Yeah. yeah. Our work on this planet, no matter what, is, tends to be fleeting. So, But that's a that's for the new podcast, the New Books in Philosophy, that discussion. Yes. <laughs> we'll get okay. back to like, we'll what happened. Right? Yes. So um, we've just gone over kind of a skeleton of the story of what who I what who I want to call the book's main character. And I want to, I'm using that term purposefully because while this isn't a work of fiction, it's, it's, as you say, it's a story, right? We, we follow the ups and downs of this man's life, Salomone slash Ercole. But, uh, and so we have this, this story, like in his biography, which is fabulous. And you use that to talk about some really big issues in Renaissance historiography. Um, And before we get to those specifically, I want to talk about this technique, that of micro history. Um, so tell me what how you came to choose this method. What made you think about this? Okay, so um, <laughs> it's a big question. Okay. I'll, I'll start yeah. with what this book is for me. I mean, um, as mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the book touches on many issues, including artistic patronage and um, um, the kind of courtly culture and material culture. But for me, it's mainly a book about conversion and um, what religious conversion was actually like in the Renaissance um, in Italy. And um, Italy has not been the focus of studies of conversion in the 15th and early 16th century. Um, 
studies of conversion have tended to focus on what happens after the outbreak of the Reformation in Italy uh, for various reasons that we can talk about later. And studies of Jewish conversion in the earlier period, so in the 15th century, have focused mainly on the Iberian Peninsula, on, on mm-hmm. Spain and Portugal, because, mm-hmm. and these conversions, you know, these were mass conversions that occurred in the face of pogroms and threats of expulsion, leading to the eventual expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, just a few months after my guy's conversion from mm-hmm. Judaism in Ferrara. So he's basically a contemporary of the Jews who converted in Spain, those who did not, um, who were not exiled, but converted and remained in Spain. Um, and um, that the what, what my study of religious conversion in Italy has led me to realize is that there was actually a growth in the number, in the, an increase in the number of conversions from Judaism throughout the 15th century. We come across more and more cases of conversions, but it was never a mass conversion. There was no movement of mass conversion. Um, and these conversions were mostly individual in nature, which meant that we have one man, usually it's a man, sometimes it's a woman who converts alone, but most likely a man mm-hmm. who converts either alone or with his family, um, because the children of a convert also had to be baptized, and mm-hmm. um, the spouse many times also followed the husband to the baptismal um, font because in order not to lose custody over the children, which would have happened if she uh, uh, chose not to convert. And we see this in Solomon's case as well. So these mm-hmm. are individual conversions. Uh, my research has shown that many of them were not entirely voluntary. So in a way, they were much like the mass conversions in Spain and Portugal because many of them were also the result of coercion and a desperate attempt to save one's life. And this is what we see in Salomone's case. But they were, you know, categorically different from Jewish conversions in Iberia because they were individual rather than mass conversions. Mm-hmm. And um, what I, um, dis- well, what I thought would be the best way to approach a phenomenon that was individualistic in nature and it had to do with, with an, an individual um, cases in, in nature, I thought that the uh, best way to approach this is just look at an individual case mm-hmm. and uh, as a window into this phenomenon of Jewish conversion in Renaissance Italy. And this one particular case, because of the long paper trail that the protagonist of the conversion left behind um, actually made it possible to um, reconstruct both the the motivation and the ramifications of his conversion. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, microhistory, as uh, some call it uh, a historiographical practice and others defined it as a methodology, but uh, however you define it, it's uh, a way of looking at a particular small case, small, 
because it pertains to an individual life story or just one event sometimes or a particular uh, judicial case that is well-documented just because the records from the case have survived. Um, and by looking at this one case, you are able to shed light on segments of society that uh, of which we know very little or nothing at all mm-hmm. because they are at the margins of society and not at positions of power like those who are able to leave behind written accounts of what happens to them and what they their desires and their wishes were. So mm-hmm. um, in this case, um, the person in question was a very successful artist. So in one respect, he was exceptional because how many very talented artists do you have, even during the Renaissance, who achieved this degree, this kind of fame? He really had an international fame. Um, already as a Jew. Um, so he was exceptional in one regard, but he was also normal. And this is, this is a, a term coined by a, an Italian historian, um, the term the exceptional normal, in which you look at one case that is exceptional, otherwise you wouldn't have known about it. It had to be exceptional in order to come to the attention of a, a judicial tribunal or to come to the attention of anyone to record it. So it's an exceptional case, but the protagonists or protagonist or protagonists um, are members of marginal groups in society. And so by studying their story, um, you're able to actually um, look into the, to discover the details of the daily life of people at the margin of society. And in this case, uh, just the vast documentation concerning this very talented goldsmith has made it possible for me to discover um, facets, little known or unknown facets of um, the daily life of Jews and their relations with Christians, of artists working for, for the courts, but doing the kind of work that we would perhaps define as, as artisans because they were working with, uh, with their hands and working very hard mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, very, until very late at night using candlelight. Um, but both as a Jew and as a first-generation convert after his conversion, um, his um, well-documented artistic career has made it possible to, to say more about these mm-hmm. social groups. And microhistory as a historiographic technique enables us to do to do this. Um, mm-hmm. What was um, so, so? It's not. I think you mentioned uh, earlier that it, it is a biography of of Salomone de Sesso. In a way, it could be read as a biography. But what interested me in researching it was not so much what happened to him, but what, as you said, what what. What happened to him can tell us about mm-hmm. uh, broader issues that right. have to do with, with life during the Renaissance. Sure. And this requires like folks focusing your lens like tighter and wider and tighter and wider, which can be tricky. But um, I want to compliment you on it. It's really done well here. Um, Thank yeah. Thank you. Uh, so. I mean, let's do that right now. Well, we were talking about apostasy, which is you know the one of the overwhelming, most important themes of this book. 
So let's do that right now. So tell me, let's do a little of micro history for our listeners. Uh, why, why does, uh, why does he convert? Why does our oh. guy convert? Well, he converts, um, because he is, um, charged with very serious crimes and he, Unlike Christians charged with similar similar crimes, he's actually given the possibility to save his life by agreeing to be baptized together with his entire family. And this is uh, uh, so what we see here, what this one particular case tells us, um, just this one aspect, is that mm-hmm. the rulers of Ferrara, the Duke of Ferrara and his wife, uh, so it's Ercole d'Este and Eleonora of Aragon, his wife, were so interested in getting Jews to convert that they were willing to offer um, a, a Jewish criminal, a person convicted of, of serious crimes, the possibility of saving his life and basically avoiding any kind of punishment just by agreeing to be baptized with his entire family. And they make a whole big show out of his baptism. It's a big event. It's staged as a major ceremony in the um, in Ferrara's cathedral uh, in a very theatrical manner and attracts basically all the inhabitants of the city who come to watch this occasion. So... Um, so, so basically, he converted to to evade um, being punished for a crime of which he was accused, and which um, and and one other interesting aspect of this accusation is that he was um, implicated or incriminated in this um, um, in in these crimes by his fellow Jews. So other Jews accused him and were basically responsible for his. Um, eventual apostasy. I don't think they wanted him to convert. I think they wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the way and punished for his um, transgression, either for the transgression transgressions of which they accused him, but most likely for other transgressions that are not um, mentioned in the sources. Um, but for his misconduct in general, some some of his fellow Jews really did not like him and we're not on friendly terms with him. And they end up um, implicating him in serious crimes. And he um, accepts the offer of baptism and then continues to be very successful in his career after the um, baptism, also benefiting from the fact that as a convert, he enjoys privileges um, that Jews do not enjoy, um, as well as the protection and very active support of his ducal patrons. Um, He does uh, exploit the possibility of delivering um, a baptismal sermon right after being baptized as a Catholic in in Ferrara's cathedral to actually accuse the Jews of having falsely implicated him in a crime. So he... um, he finds the way to to actually settle the scores with his um, Jewish adversaries, but it's a complicated so, story, and and I think um, that the one thing that it shows is that we, we of course, Jewish Christian relations were not um, reciprocal in any way. There was a lot of coercion and repression on the Catholic um, side, and some converts, if not all of them. We're certainly happy to to benefit from the material benefits that baptism brought with it, mm-hmm. 
But um, in some cases, Jews were actually pushed to convert by members of their community of faith. So it is less clear cut than we would assume. So let's, you know, so when we're looking at like our, while we're doing our micro history here, so what we see is, um, you know, through just the, his, the fact of his conversion, which you explore, I mean, we see the privilege of Christians over Jews, as you just explained, Um, you know, there's just how much more power Christians have and the power that they're able to wield over the Jewish community. Um, The importance of the spectacle of conversion, the importance of the idea of being a converting ruler, um, the relationships within the Jewish communities, and then information about the way courts can be used to leverage power against your friends and enemies. Yes. Right. And so these are all things that we can read from his decision to convert, which is exactly why microhistory is so interesting and so yes. useful. Yes. Um, and so what's good about this story so uh, my next question then is, do you believe this conversion was real? I'm making air quotes. Well, it depends on what you mean by real. It certainly had very real consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it was real, you know, I, I find it hard to assume that this man actually saw the light and uh, really did decide to embrace Catholicism because of sheer conviction. But um, he he really was pushed to convert by other Jews. Um, the reason I don't think that he well let me let me start again um, about this. In some cases of converts from Judaism, including one case from Ferrara, we do have written accounts by um, the converts later in the 16th century um, describing their um, change of heart and and actual actual. Um, religious and theological um, decision to, to convert. In Salomona's case, what we have is the um, oration that he was basically compelled to deliver in the cathedral, mm-hmm. in which he quotes only the very standard um, um, citations that are normally quoted on such occasions, and it's clear that he got instructions to do so. The one original piece of information that he adds to the oration concerned the other Jews who he claimed were actually uh, responsible for implicating him in a, in a crime that he didn't commit commit. Um, mm-hmm. But later on, he, we do know that he lived for 30 years. Um, he lived as a Catholic and he did not give ecclesiastical authorities any reason to suspect that his conversion was not genuine in the sense mm-hmm. that he was not never accused of reverting to Judaism. He was never accused of being in touch with other Jews in a way that could, could create suspicions about the authenticity of his life as a Catholic. Uh, we know that he had contact with other Jews, but these were all um, business dealings that he had with them. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, as basically he was borrowing money and he was um, he had to have contact with Jewish moneylenders. But, um, but he did um, adopt a surname that was meant to create the impression that he was <laughs> one of the faithful, De Fideli, mm-hmm. uh, one of the faithful Catholics. And he did send 
the daughter with which we began our talk, he did send his daughter to a convent. Sure. Um, so he did, you know, outwardly conform to the expectations from a good Catholic. And in Catholicism, as well as in Judaism in this period, practice was not really could not really be separated from belief. Uh, sure. The two were mm-hmm. inseparable. So, you know, he behaved like a Catholic. We And, and for, as far as we know, we know that he worked on Saturdays. Uh, I found one letter that describes a visit to his workshop on a Saturday to make sure that he was hard at work for um, uh, Isabella d'Este, uh, for a commission that he was late with consigning. And he was working with his son um just on a saturday so this means mm-hmm. that he okay. also he had to conform to to catholic time which was different from from jewish time um mm-hmm. and but in this context it is interesting um just to note that before his conversion i do know that he was not an estranged jew i mean he was uh he was certainly behaving as a jew was expected to behave before his conversion and as a Catholic was expected to behave after his baptism. So prior mm-hmm. to his conversion, I know that, for instance, he would stay and eat only at the Jewish hostelry in Ferrara. And the reason I know mm. this is that I found the receipt of the payment <laughs> that the Duke of Ferrara paid for 48 yeah. meals that he ate um, at this Jewish hostelry, which means that, you know, he kept kosher in the 15th century mm-hmm. sense of what this meant, but it was a, it was a major identity uh, trait mm-hmm. for, for Jews, you know, what they right. ate and what they wore. So this is what he did before his conversion. I know that he was also um, helping other Jews in trouble because using his position as a very successful artist who was regularly in touch with the rulers of Ferrara and Mantua, and he actually uh, tried to get them to help at least three other Jews mm-hmm. that I found mentioned in letters that um, that pertain to their whatever help they needed. So he was not an estranged Jew prior to his conversion, um, but then apparently he behaved as a Catholic after his conversion. And it, sure. Yeah. Okay. But um, just to to say one more thing about microhistory, um, basically, essentially, because it it deals with. Um, marginal groups and Mm -hmm. deals with people who usually did not leave a written account of their thoughts and their feelings um, in a complete way, especially in this period that we're talking about. Um, There are always gaps that remain and things that we cannot know for sure. And uh, this is why um, it is a historiographic genre that is perhaps the closest to literature. I mean, it mm-hmm. is grounded in historical documents and in historical fact, and it remains um, lo- faithful to the uh, historical profession in that I couldn't just make up uh, things that didn't happen in order to, to fill the gaps in the story. But what I do throughout the book is that when I do not know the answer to my questions, then I speculate on what could mm-hmm. have been, given what we know about certain phenomena or about the conventions in this period. And these sadly have to remain speculations, and I say so explicitly in the book, but um, but this is another um, major 
trait of of the microhistorical writing. Right, and and the 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 most common criticism of the microhistorical yes. tradition is that you have to speculate, and of course, yes. you know, the answer to that is then are we to never study anything? Like, what if you? can't say precisely what happened with 100% surety. We don't really have a profession. Um, but I think that this point that you've just made is a perfect example of how useful this is. Do we believe his conversion is real? Well, uh, who? It, how much does that even matter, right? If he did have a conversion of the heart, it was certainly well-timed. But no matter, you can see that um, he's performing Judaism very well, right? He's living like a Jew and then he's living like a Catholic and we can that that you have this proof for, and we can make some comments. You as you do, you can make some speculation on what that might mean. And that's, I, I, I can also say in this context: Can we ever, as historians, can we ever know what people actually believed? No, I mean so, we so can see what they've written. The question we can. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean that they really believed it. Right. And, no, of um, course not. He does mention God on several occasions in his letters, but it is clear that he does so just as a way of endearing himself to his patrons. It doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. But um, but what we can say, I think for sure, I mean, relatively, we can say that it is clear that um, the Duke of Ferrara and his wife were definitely interested in um, inducing Jews mm-hmm. to convert. And this is important because, um, you know, we don't normally think of one of the uh, most glamorous courts of Renaissance Italy that we tend to think of as very enlightened and, and secularized um, mm-hmm. was actually, uh, this is a major center of art and humanism in this period. And uh, Ercole d'Esta, who just a few months later welcomes families of of exiled Spanish Jews to Ferrara Mm -hmm. for economic reasons. At the same time, he is very much, he's really eager to induce conversions of local Jews in Ferrara. This we can say for sure. So we can say for sure that um, lay secular rulers in Mm -hmm. the period were actually more active um, in trying to um, get Jews to convert than the ecclesiastical authorities. This mm-hmm. changes um, after the second quarter of the 16th century. But in this earlier period, before the Reformation, it was clearly um, not just Ercole d'Este, but also other rulers, um, secular rulers in northern Italy who were really interested in, in Jewish conversion. Not all of them, because some of the letters that I found actually show the differences between for instance, the princely rulers of Ferrara and Mantua regarding this kind of uh, conversion, which was clearly undertaken under the threat of judicial condemnation. And um, and the other thing we can say for sure is what the results of conversion mm-hmm. were, that, that, as I mentioned earlier, and also the reaction of, of both Jews and Christians to conversion. And for instance, we see even in official documents that pre- refer to Master Ercole's um, mm-hmm. um, artistic success um, or, or to, to just to commissions that he received or to the payment for his work. And these continued to refer to him for years after his baptism as a former Jew. Now, mm-hmm. baptism was supposed to turn him into a new man. He got a new name. But people in Ferrara, both Christians and Jews, didn't just forget his Jewish past. So he continued to be 
looked at with suspicion for years after his conversion. He could never really become a Christian like all right. Christians. So this is sure. one other thing that we can say for sure. And we so, know, yeah. and we know that the Jews never forgave him for whatever it, did, no. it was that he did. So, right. So we can see, you know, whatever the motivation, the outcome has very real consequences. And these points you're making, right? That um, this that converts never become old Christians. But you know, if we talk about his daughter who lives in a convent, who's a nun, and one assumes his grandchildren, who are you know, his children are raised are raised Catholic and right. We see that there is a, that we have a new Catholic family coming out of this. Um, These are major points of discussion. When we talk about conversion and apostasy in the Iberian peninsula, right in the, what is it? The Chinquich in 16th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in Italy as well, a little, although less so um, around the council of Trent and after the council of Trent. But this is a, a new contribution that you're making. Did I make that clear? Was that clear? I'm not sure. Okay. You want to say this again? Yeah. Like what? It, so anyway, you've made this point that the, these consequences are very real. Yes. Uh, and now I want you to. What I want you to do is to shift over and talk to me about how why this is an important contribution to the historiography. That that, that was I was being too clever. Let's just go there. Okay. How do you contribute to the historiography regarding apostasy with this book? Well, um, first of all, I draw attention to the phenomenon of Jewish conversion in Renaissance Italy, where Jewish-Christian relations are normally assumed to be basically at their very best phase during this period um, and to have only um, deteriorated after the outbreak of the Reformation in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I then also call attention to the uh, difference in conversion between um, um, the Iberian uh, Peninsula and, and Italy. Of course, th- this was well known that there was no mass conversion mm-hmm. in Italy, but I um, wanted to um, elucidate the, the traits of individual conversion, what it actually meant to convert beyond the moment of baptism uh, by looking at a particular case that reveals the, the particular dimensions of individual conversions and what it could mean both for the family and for the Jewish community. Um, and then also the broader social attitudes toward conversion on the part of Christians both the ruling elites in different places and um, and the local local population. Um, there is a, a major protagonist of the book, but I also um, discuss other conversions that occurred mostly in Ferrara, but also in Mantua in those mm-hmm. years or around those years that actually, uh, well, show us that most of those were done under some kind of coercion and in this respect they resembled the forced mm-hmm. conversions that occurred in Iberia okay um, alright good and the, the one other thing which um, I think we haven't talked about yet is um, a way in which the Jews, despite being a persecuted minority in a very disadvantageous uh, uh, position, could um, actually 
get rid of an unwanted member <laughs> of their community. And, uh, and in this particular case, the fact that um, the accusations against him had to do with um, illicit sexuality is also, I, I think, an, an important contribution to the study of, of Jewish history and of Jewish-Christian relations in this period. Let's um, let's focus on that a little bit more. So he's charged with sodomy. Yes. And um, so is he a sodomite? What does that mean even? So the, the chapter that I dedicate to this accusation is, is titled uh, a Jewish sodomite question mark, because mm-hmm. like so many other things, uh, how can we know if he really was a sodomite or was just accused of sodomy as a way of mm-hmm. getting him out of the way? Um being a, a, he was accused of, of sodomy, and um, sodomy could mean different things of um, what contemporaries regarded as uh, unnatural sexual behavior that was, or, or sexual acts against nature that contradicted, contradicted, or were against the nat- natural natural order of things, uh, but. Mostly and especially, I mean, it is clear in this context that he was accused of um, of homosexual relations and mm-hmm. homosexual relations with um, presumably one of the uh, assistants that he employed in his workshop. And we should keep in mind that um, same-sex relations among men were not uncommon in the Renaissance and are um, documented not only in... Um, court cases that did survive, but also um, but also in literary works and in other kind of um, cultural mm-hmm. creations that we know of. Mm-hmm. So this was pretty um, so we know and it has been studied extensively that um, in some artistic milieus, um, same-sex relations among men or among uh, or between a man and a younger boy were not frowned upon and were socially accepted. Mm-hmm. And it also seems that they were not completely unheard of in Jewish circles. And we do have occasional indications um, of either romantic or sexual contacts um, between Jewish male Jews one with Mm -hmm. the other. Um, But sodomy would or could be prosecuted, was most likely prosecuted in the Renaissance when the, uh, well, the culprit or the man in question strayed from conventional norms. So either he was too old to actually still have sexual relations with boys, he was older than 33 and that was no longer accepted. Um, Uh, Or if he were already a married man, I mean, it was fine to whatever, enjoy some kind of sexual liberty when you were still a young man and were conforming to the sexual norms of your uh, society, but not when, like Salomona, when you were Mm -hmm. a married man and a father of four and uh, were not expected Mm -hmm. to do what he did. So. Here, again, we, we don't have the details of what, even of what he was actually accused of, just that he was accused of sodomy. We do know that he um, was probably trained by a goldsmith in the Mantovano region who was um, 
notorious for the romantic affairs that he had with um, very young, well, with young boys. So what could have happened is that this other goldsmith's reputation or notoriety may have basically rubbed off on, um, mm-hmm. on Salomone or else that he really did also engage in this in, in, in same sex relations or just in homosexual acts occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned earlier, he was clearly, you know, he spent his money in places of ill repute. And we know this because he constantly got into trouble financially. One of the fascinating documents that I discovered and that I didn't expect to to come across was that last will that his mother um, um, had drafted um, prior to his conversion um, when he was still a Jew. And he was her only surviving son. And she basically disinherited him, saying that she had already paid so much to cover his debts that she, he could have no additional claims on her uh, uh, patrimony. Which means that um, for someone who was working as a goldsmith, which was an elite trade in Renaissance Italy, um, he strangely could not amass enough money to stay out of trouble. He was constantly in debt. And this is what even eventually brings about his downfall in 1521, 30 years after his um, baptism. So he's, uh, you know, he, he has financial troubles prior to his conversion. He continues to get into trouble and to be, to, um, is described as impoverished uh, in the, throughout the second decade of the 16th century uh, after the death of his two major uh, patrons, the Dukes of Ferrara. And eventually he disappears from the historical record after um, pawning the gold that he received from mm-hmm. Isabella d'Este just because, just to, because the fa- his family was on the brink of hunger. So he was constantly losing money, and this does not make sense um, from what we know about goldsmith in this period, who were usually able to become um, um, to, to attain some kind of economic security and stability, and he was never able to do so. And um, so the one possible hypothesis, and again, it's a speculation, is that he did things that made it, you know, impossible mm-hmm. um, to to actually amass enough money. He came from um, a pretty well-off family. He was the son of a, of, um, a, a well-off Jewish moneylender, um, and, um, and still his mother had to cover his debts early on when he was just uh, beginning his career as a goldsmith. And then, even though he was, he constantly got commissions mm-hmm. from, um, and he was constantly employed, and was even on a regular uh, uh, salary. He was receiving a, a monthly salary from the um, um, princely rulers of Ferrara for many years, in addition to um, doing work also for other people. And he could still never just have enough money. So uh, one way of explaining this in light of what we know about where do people lose money in this period, they lose money if they gamble or if they just spend their time, you know, drinking or hanging out in taverns. And in these taverns, one would also presumably engage in illicit sexual relations. So this is one possibility to explain what happens to him. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is, and this makes some of these bigger points. It's perhaps he was having sex with boys. It's hard to say, but we know it's possible. Uh, we know it wouldn't have been that big a deal really in a lot of ways, but it's prosecution was serious, right? So if you have what, enemies. What, what we know is that other artists and even Goldsmith like Benvenuto Cellini, you know, even Cellini. boasted yeah. about, yes, Cellini uh, boasted about his uh, homoerotic relations with the assistants and apprentices who were mm-hmm. employed by him in his workshop. So, um Salomone had two Jewish assistants to begin with, and uh, two or three, and um, he may have exploited them, and they may have turned against him. So it's, it's certainly possible. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been exceptional during this period. What was exceptional, as you just noted, is that he was um, actually prosecuted for sodomy and for other things, mostly of financial nature. Yeah. Which, you know, is also about, it goes to show, goes to demonstrate as well that people, all including Jews, knew how to leverage the courts, um, you know, and it goes as support to your idea that conversions were often coerced, at least in some ways. Yes, but here, um, here I have to say, uh, just to mention some very frustrating aspect of archival research. So I know that Jews were really actively involved in incriminating him. And the reason I know this is that I came across letters that say, you know, we heard from Buenaventura, the Jew, that Salomone da Sesso is also guilty of whatever. But then some of these letters just say, and I'm sending this Jew to you and he will tell you the details yeah. in person. And then you're <laughs> like, so, so, you know, how are we, how are we to know what um, actually happened? So sometimes we can just never really know what happened, what no. actually happened. Um, so much frustration. Uh, yeah. So on the one hand, you know, Italian, the wealth of archival documents um, preserved in, in Italian archives is just, Amazing. I mean, it's just uh, you, you sometimes get the feeling that the Gonzaga and the Este family, especially the, the Isabella d'Este, they were basically documenting every single uh, day of their <laughs> life. But then sometimes, you know, very sensitive issues. They knew that it was better to just um, talk about in person and not writing yeah. letters that are then kept in the archive. So that is quite yeah. frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I how many times have you just looked, you know, just like why you why couldn't you say one more sentence? Like, or, you know, I'll read a criminal prosecution. I'm like, really, you couldn't ask this one? You couldn't ask them why they did this? Like, what? I've got 27 folios of stupid questions, and never once did you ask the one I really want to know. Yeah. Um, but then you sometimes <laughs> also get um, and there are nice surprises in the archives as well. For instance. Just for his baptismal ceremony, I found four different letters that were all sent from Ferrara oh, the day day or two after his baptism that describe just the baptismal ceremony and uh, uh, oration that he was um, uh, that he had to deliver after that. So this, well, on the one hand, it, it goes to show how important the event was deemed. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just recorded in great detail. But also there are discrepancies among the different reports reporting the same event. And um, it is an interesting exercise for the historian. We tend to we tend to trust our documents, but then when you have four um, documents describing the same pretty, you know, limited event in terms of the time that it uh, um, that it took and uh, and there are 
pretty serious discrepancies among them. What do you do? So this is also a question that I had to to cope with. Wow, ah, uh, that's that's yeah. What do you do? Which is a uh, uh, that's that's a really cool point to end on. I think it's a great place to uh, to stop. I've taken up so much of your time. I have about a million more questions, but this we've been at this for a while. So uh, let let's wrap this up. So tell me what's next. What are you working on now? So I. I- continue to work on the conversion of um, Jewish girls and women in Italy who became nuns and one of the other but they keep leading me to different um, to different um, stories and one of the other cases that I worked on um, pertained to a nun who was of Jewish origins but was also a former slave. And she's mentioned in this convent chronicle from Prato as a former slave. And I was like, were there Jewish slaves in Italy? What were they doing in Italy? That is something we never read about in the textbooks Mm -hmm. on the Italian Renaissance. So, uh, and and I like looking at things that are not mentioned in textbooks and, and adding them to what we should teach about the Renaissance. So I started looking at the phenomenon of Jewish uh, slaves who were brought to Italy and, and sold as slaves in the Italian peninsula in the early modern era and, and female Jewish slaves and what happened to them. And this is my current uh, research projects that right. I'm working on. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to yeah. I I really I want you to tell me that. So okay. please write that book. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tamar Herzig, for taking time out um, of your very busy schedule with many many hats to uh, talk to me and our listeners today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. It was fun. All right, great. Goodbye. And I will uh, give you I'll give you another call when you when you get your next workout. All okay. right. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.